0: Spent fifty million dollars building a glucose strip factory that's turning out billions of strips per year, and after a decade, you're going to have to invest another fifty to one hundred million. And our pitch was, actually, don't change any of that; just update the software in your electronics.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: Smart enough to design signal processing algorithms, and smooth enough to win a Marshall. Serial entrepreneur Shri Iyengar joins us today to tell us about his remarkable journey from Knoxville, Tennessee to the frontiers of digital health. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genomic and other health data. All right, Lisa. So the question that's perplexing me these days, uh, guy to the perplex, and that I thought you might be able to help me out with, is this. Whatever you say, darling. Oh, yeah, baby. Um, I keep hearing that entrepreneurs are supposed to be driven by a passion to solve problems and to answer questions, and are supposed to avoid at all costs tech-driven solutions. VC Dave McClure famously advises founders to remember that, quote, your solution isn't my problem. Are you tracking? I'm trying. I'm, work- I'm trying to stay up with you here. All right. All right. Excellent. However... However, interestingly, um, at the same time, it's also clear that technology is an extremely powerful driver of science as well as application. For example, legendary biologist Sidney Brenner once described science progress as, quote, the interplay of techniques, discoveries, and new ideas, probably in that order. So given this, couldn't you argue that perhaps it's not so unreasonable for entrepreneurs to actually focus on the emerging technologies and then look for ways to apply it?
1: You know, I think uh, there's, well, clearly there's examples of technology that came first and found its way to a market. And, and then there's examples of problems that, you know, got solved and technology was was one of the ways in which they were solved. It seems to me it has a lot to do with the quality of the entrepreneur in one way or the other, right? It's got to be uh, some combination thereof. If you have somebody savvy enough to find a market, regardless of whether they find it before or after they find their
2: technology. Lisa, did you just say savvy entrepreneur? You, I did. You did. Well, let's bring into the discussion <laughs> one such savvy entrepreneur, Sri Iyengar, a serial entrepreneur and savvy entrepreneur who has brought his expertise in signal processing to a series of digital health startups. So um, I was thinking, Sri, that your experience with the first company you co-founded, Agometrics, seems like a great example of a company, of a startup that began with the technology in search of an application. Could you uh, tell us that story?
0: Sure, sure. Ab- absolutely. And and thanks for having me on the show uh this morning. And uh thank you for that wonderful intro. I'll try to I'll try to live up to parts of that savvy uh, <laughs> the savviness of <laughs> too, so.
1: Lord knows you can do better on the goofiness scale. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um yeah, so um the first company that I was involved with uh was Agmatrix and um it it, it did it kinda grew out of uh, the research I'd done in my PhD and and what we were working on, what was what I was working on, was a um, a new way of uh, improving signal-to-noise ratio, and for biological and chemical sensors. So it's basically signal processing, but applied to signals that are that are started and created and generated by biological reactions, uh, instead of you know like uh, radar signals or speech or anything like that. And um, what we realized uh, was that we could use this for. Glucose sensors, because uh, at the time the FDA was sitting here going, "Oh, you need to be within plus or minus 20% uh, to be able to sell a glucose product, a, a glucose meter, uh, to the general public." And what we realized was that the the techniques that we had developed, and, and a very it's a little bit of a, a, a subtle subtle point here, that um, we weren't we actually didn't know what problem we had to solve. We just realized that we had. We had a couple of you know we had some interesting tools we had developed. So we just kind of tinkered around and said, well, what what problem or what you know what problem are people going to pay us for? That, that's really what it what it came down to.
1: <laughs> so you're that guy. You're that guy. Technology looking for a problem.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like, how are we going to pay bills? You know, if we started this company and we we had these basically a toolkit of of, uh, of algorithms that we just had to model and, and, and fine tune towards different aspects of of making a glucose meter uh, more accurate. And and we looked at, well, is it interferences from, you know, like vitamin C and, and, and Tylenol and things like this, which could affect the glucose reading, or is it differences in blood-to-blood variation? Is it temperature? Is it manufacturing variations? So we just went around it, and we tried to solve all these problems. And, and nine out of 10 of them, people just said, yeah, not interesting, not interesting, not, not, and, 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 you know, not valuable until we stumbled upon one where they said, oh, actually, if you can solve that, we'd be interested. So this was truly a case of us having a set of techniques and trying to apply to everything. Um, But at least we knew that we had to go after glucose sensors. We knew the market was big. It was kind of like, you know, if you're going to go out and go prospecting for gold you know, back in the 1800s, you knew you had to go out west. So we knew we were in the right area. We just didn't know exactly what, what cave or what mine to go down.
2: And then how did you, how did that, how did that evolve? So you were, um, uh, how did the business evolve from there?
0: Right. Um, well we first, um, you know, this was back when, uh, when we were five guys in a basement and,
1: um, Is that the East coast version of a garage?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, <you> know, <laughs> there's not enough space for garage, <laughs> but it, it it was it was quite literally a windowless basement. Uh, one of our investors had, so it was it was great.
2: Very authentic. You like that? Yeah.
0: So we actually went to a bunch of companies like Roche, J and J, Abbott, and Bayer, and we we took we actually we went to the pharmacy and we just bought their glucose strips, stuck it into our device, and just programmed our algorithms and, and fine tuned it to their particular glucose strips, and then we presented this data to all these folks and. Uh, we just had meeting after meeting after meeting and after you know half a dozen meetings with each of these companies we finally started hearing that they were not interested in in 9 out of 10 of our applications but everybody was saying oh but if you could solve problem number 10 that would be that would be valuable
1: and was it the same problem number 10
2: across all of them
0: yes yeah yeah exactly
2: and what was that problem
0: and and the problem was the glu- uh, all these guys had their glucose readings uh, greatly affected by the level of hematocrit in the patient's blood. So, hematocrit meaning being the number of red blood cells, and and hematocrit levels can vary. Uh, you know, women on average have a thirty-seven percent hematocrit level, and men on average have um, a forty-three percent. So, and, and, you know, if you're an athlete, you can be up to fifty, sixty percent. And if you're um, if you're anemic,
2: Lance Armstrong probably up to seven. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And, and so, but if you if you have anemia, um, anemic, could be down to twenty, thirty percent. So there's a huge variation. And bearing in mind that you know you have a plus or minus twenty percent acceptance level back in the day, and the hematocrit variation eats up a, a large part of that. So we heard that over and over again. Uh, and then you know we had this brilliant idea that you know let's we can definitely solve that. Now, now that we know what problem to solve, we can fine tune our algorithms, and we did that. And our goal was we'd license this to all these players. And that was our business model.
1: So how old were you guys when this was going on? Like in your early 20s? Uh,
0: we were late 20s. Uh, I think it, uh, I was 20, 28 when I started the company.
1: How did you guys get into these companies? How did you get into the right level of people at J&J and Bayer and all these for them to even talk to you? Because, I mean, for the most part, I imagine they would, you know, I would imagine they would look at you and go like, yeah,
0: thanks. No. Yeah. Well, um, so I have to give, you know, virtually all the credit to my brilliant co-founder uh, Sunny Vu, which I'm, I'm sure you, I, I think you know Sonny. Yeah, I know um, Sonny. And, and, if, and if you ever met him, you know, <laughs> he he can he he can charm his way into anything. So a a a, a large part of it was just um, emails, phone. Like a lot of it was just cold calls. Um, although although in a couple of instances we used the MIT alumni database to to try and to network our way in. But um, but once we started. You know, we were offering a solution that nobody had, which was, or, or no, an approach nobody had, and so everybody was receptive to hearing us because it's in such a competitive space. When you hear about something that could solve one of your problems, you know, they they generally take the call.
2: And it wasn't hardware. I mean, you you made people's existing stuff better, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. We had we had no intention of of, um, of building hardware or, or manufacturing anything. We were just going to license our algorithms. and And our pitch to these guys was. Um, you know, you spent you know 50 million dollars, uh, you know, uh, building a glucose strip factory that's turning out billions of strips per year. And after a decade, you're going to have to invest another 50 to 100 million just to do the research, um, build another factory, and get it through the FDA and all that. And and our pitch was, actually, don't change any of that. Just update the software in your in your in your electronics in your meter, and you have another decade uh, lease of life on your existing manufacturing assets. So that was our pitch, and w- w- when you speak numbers like that, um, you know, the the uh, they tend to listen
2: <laughs> and then how to, tell us about the uh, the ultimate outcome for the company
0: right so um uh so what ended up happening was uh everybody was interested um and everybody wanted to have an exclusive license to our to our technology.
1: It's nice to be popular,
0: yeah, it is except that you know you you we, we we didn't want to give an exclusive because that would have that would have stifled our growth. So long story short, we had to actually um, build our own products and start taking market share away from these uh, from these people, and we and we, and we did that. Um, we started growing the business, and then. Um, you know, today the company is uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's an independent company. It, it makes glucose meters for many of the store brands, um, like the the CVS brand of glucose meter, the Target pharmacy brand, the Kroger brand. But that's you know, it, it was, it's, it's an OEM business. But that's not what we were known for. What we were known for was when the iPhone came out, um, we actually made the glucose meter that plugged into the iPhone, and that, unbeknownst to us, that was the very first medical. Hardware medical device that Apple allowed to connect to the iPhone. Huh. That that caught. Yeah, I mean, we we, we we thought working with the FDA was hard, but then working with Apple turned for not to be even harder. Um, <laughs> and it and it, it was funny. Because, well, it simply came down to one one difference. That but, but when the FDA rejects something, they legally have to tell you why. When Apple rejects something, they don't have to tell you anything. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, so it took us a while to figure out what they were concerned about, and it, and it really was down to uh, at the time when when Steve Jobs was alive, he didn't want his iPhone to be under the per- uh, turned into a medical device, um, and so that that was the main main thing. So that product caught um, the attention of Sanofi, and then they took that product uh, globally; they they bought rights to it, um, and then uh, over the years the companies just continued to grow uh, in, in different ways.
2: Wow. So, that's, it's so it's so exciting to see how, how that happens. Um, I also wanted you to talk about your experience with, um, with Misfit Wearables, which I know is a fascinating story, mm-hmm. but um, I want to talk briefly first about how you you and you met uh, Sonny. I understand that you, Sonny Vu, you know, you're, you're co-founder of that company as well, yep. that um, uh, though um, a savvy entrepreneur, both you and him grew up not in Boston, nor in San Francisco, right. but yet managed to um, make something of yourselves um, uh, in the entrepreneurial <laughs> world. Um, <laughs> you, you attended similar science camps as a kid, go math camp, um, but you didn't know each other before you met in college. Can you take up the story from there?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we, we knew about each other before college. Um, I had actually spent a summer at Lawrence Livermore out out, out in the Bay Area,
2: and 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 it was a supercomputing camp. Wow. Um, Lisa, you went to supercomputing. Yeah, like
0: a mega nerd.
2: <laughs> Lisa just hung out there like, "Hey man, do you go to supercomputing camp?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> Trust me, that that pickup line never worked.
1: <laughs> it obviously did um, for Sonny.
0: <laughs> yes. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but uh, what's even funnier, um Sunny had gone to Argonne National Lab in in Chicago and and, and he was at superconductivity camp i totally kid you not (laughs) and uh so they're they're both uh sponsored by the same department of energy program so we knew about each other through that network and then when we um, and actually one of our we we had a mutual friend uh through that through that experience as well and um uh and so you know our mutual friend said hey you guys are both going to University of Illinois, um, so you guys should meet up. And of course, you know, pre-Facebook days, of course, we, we, we didn't have a good way of getting in touch with, with each other. But, you know, sometime in the first semester of my freshman year, um, this goofy looking kid sits down next to me and starts chatting with uh, my roommate, who, uh, who was also having, a, um, having dinner with. So anyway, one thing led to another, and we realized that, wait a minute, you're Shreed, and wait a minute, you're Sunny. And and we had uh, we, we you know we realized that we knew each other through our mutual friend uh, Daniel Chang. Now here's where the story gets really sad or funny, depending on how you look at it. Um, you know, so pre Facebook days, um, we actually uh, used to carry around photographs of our high school friends. That was that's kind of what you did in your wallet. That was your high school, you know, your senior portrait, whatever. So I pulled out my wallet and I, I I showed Sonny a picture of my friend Daniel from high school, saying, "Wait, this is a guy that you know, uh, our mutual friend." And then. Sonny pulls out his wallet, shows me the exact same picture that was mailed to him. So at that point, we're like, "All right, this is destined to be." So we're, we're, we're both we're both sad losers. So we <laughs> hang out to each other.
2: And, and then you started to begin. Clapping. So this is I it wanted...
0: like the uh, the
1: original, uh, you know, version of some terrifying dating app where you swipe <laughs> open your wallet to the left, and there's your class picture. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: All right. So I want to. I... Just to keep, uh, I want to jump to the beginning of uh, Misfit, sure. where it sounds like it began when you were um, at Agametrics yeah. and pitching it to uh, potential uh, buyers. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, there's there a particularly interesting interaction you had. Could you go into that?
0: Sure. Um, you know, uh, you know Agametrics has always been an OEM white label company. So we would develop the tech and we'd find a commercial partner to take it to market. And so, um, you know, one of the companies we were, we were talking with, uh, was, was another medical device company and, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, another, another one of the companies we were, uh, uh, talking with was another medical device company and the chairman of the board there was John Scully. And, uh, you know, we, we, we saw that and then we were, we were pretty, pretty excited. And so we actually asked, um, their CEO if he could invite John to the meeting and I you know, really we just wanted to meet him and take a picture of him for Facebook.
1: Was he wearing a hoodie? Because the last time I saw him at South by Southwest, he was wearing a hoodie and it, it really freaked me out.
0: <laughs> I've seen him. I've seen him in hoodies before. And he was actually dressed up and I actually have that photo on Facebook. So I'll have to dig it up. Um, but, but he was just, and he was a wonderful guy to, to chat with. He was like super, uh, humble, modest, down to earth and just, just genuinely a, a nice human being. Um, and so, you know, we, we got to, you know, we, we got to know him. We got to kind of hang out with him at his house and I and, and met his wife, Diane. And, um, you know, that kind of continued for a couple of months. And then uh, towards the end of all of this, um, Sanofi came in and, and, and bought rights to our product line. Um, and so at that point, we turned around to John and we said, hey, uh, you know, it's been really awesome getting to know you. But, you know, hey, we had, kind of had to do the deal with Sanofi because, you know, the the, the the check size is huge, <laughs> uh, and 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 John obviously is like, look, you're doing absolutely the right thing. That's what you should do, um, and uh, then th- then he he started asking us what we wanted to what we were thinking of doing next. Now, what was happening with AgaMatrix is at the time um, Sonny and I uh, were very keen on pushing forward and doubling down on mobile health, and you know this was two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and in is, this is very, very early days. And so the whole concept of investing a lot into apps, um, especially when Android platform was, was not quite stable um, and, and spending a lot of time and resources getting these apps through the FDA, that was that's, that's pretty difficult. Um, and we wanted to share our data with RunKeeper, MyFitnessPal and all these other health and wellness apps, but the FDA had kind of put the kibosh on that um, back then. Uh, they've now since changed their stance, but, but uh, back then, it, it would have been very difficult. So, um, Agamatrix as a company was more, and you know, our board was more geared towards, um, you know, staying in the in the diabetes space and, and and being more of a medical device company as opposed to uh, as opposed to evolving into a digital health company. And, and to be, and to be fair, they did, I know the sentiment wasn't that it wasn't going to happen. It was more that, you know, now it's not the right time to do it. It was a, you know, kind of, a, you know, the incentive was, was to wait a little bit. And of course being entrepreneurs we were like, well, we don't really want to wait. And at that time, John, uh, John Scully had, you know, we we're, were chatting with him and he basically said, Hey, listen, let Agamatrix be the best glucose medical device manufacturing company on the planet. Um, and if you guys want to do something in mobile health, why don't you guys transition out? join me, and the, the three of us will do something fun and interesting in digital health. Wired hoodies? <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know it was uh, and when you get a, an invitation like that you, you you don't turn it down yeah right John was is, uh, was and still is an awesome guy an awesome mentor um so that's that's how misfit started
1: why did, Where did the name come from?
0: So um we had all these weird ties into Apple, um of course, through the Dragon Matrix, we were the first, um, you know, first uh, medical device that Apple uh, carried in their store. We, we knew those, those guys really well, uh, and of course, with John and his connections to Apple, um, the the word uh, the misfit came from the Steve Jobs uh, talk at, uh, at I believe it was Stanford. And you know, mm. here's to the misfits, here's to the crazy ones. And it was really a tip of the hat to to oh, that's great. To, uh, to Apple. So
1: the misfit. Story is interesting. I mean, you guys took a different approach to that wearable that than many. I mean, there were a lot of companies coming up with fitness wearables and things at the time, and you went with the fashion st- you know, story side of that. Um, uh, uh you know, what what drove that decision?
0: Um, yeah, it was uh, it really just responding to the market opportunity. And and, and again, I I, I give a hundred percent of the credit to, to to Sunny for this insight. Um, now. When we, you know, we, we were built, we originally launched the company, uh, not wanting to build fitness trackers. We were actually building something else. But after a couple of months, we realized that Fitbits and Jawbones and at the time Nike Fuel Band, these, these products were flying off the shelves. So, and after a while, the, the light went off and we realized, wow, there is a market opportunity. There There is a clearly defined market need. People are buying these products. And what we had to do was figure out, um, figure out uh what was not in the market or what was the the market gap and you know we didn't really think too much about nike because they're really about selling shoes um you know and it really at the time was jawbone and fitbit were the only two companies and having come out of diabetes we kind of looked at this space as a greenfield like wow there's only two companies And at the time each of them was probably a billion i know one billion dollars as opposed to you know 400 billion dollar pharma companies we had to battle um and diabetes so we thought there was a huge market opportunity we just had to find what people wanted that wasn't being served up and so i, I kid you not our our very intensive um and very creative uh, market market research um, strategy was as follows it involved one intern two weeks one laptop and amazon.com so it was uh, it, we basically yeah we basically told one of our interns go scour Amazon, look at every single two and three star review of fitness trackers and categorize all of the complaints and tell us what the top three complaints that people are saying
1: are. (laughs) Number one, I'm still fat. Number two, it's ugly,
2: right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, see, that's why, that's why we skip the one star reviews. (laughs) So what did
2: they they come away? But so what, was it a form factor? Is that what you took away from that? Um, The number one complaint Beyond and more than anything else combined, like Family Feud, and the number one is
0: number one is their frustration with recharging.
2: Lisa called it ding, 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 ding. <laughs>
1: yep, yeah. Let the record state, I wrote "battery life" down on my paper. Battery life.
2: <laughs> it yep. did. I yep.
0: vouch. Now you got a voucher. <laughs> yep, yep. So that was that was the number one complaint, more than anything else combined. So then the number two complaint uh, was um, the the product had to be waterproof and. You know, don't think swimming pools, think washing machines, and that's what people complained about. Yep. And then uh, number three uh, was it had to it, basically a combination of good design, it had to look good and not be stuck on the wrist. So those, the th- three, uh, those are the three thing goals we had to hit.
2: But but even while building that, I mean, isn't one of the things I remember uh, hearing about the um, uh, the 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 wear the about the Mr. Product was you had a lot of great stuff under the hood, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, and, and it, it was all driven by the low power aspect. Um, we we had to we had to solve that, and so so our product, uh, you know, at, at the time had six months of battery life, and it was uh, our most of our engineering team came out of the um, the electric vehicle industry, so understanding uh, power management was 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 key. Now beyond that, uh, we had some additional challenges because unlike the Jawbone or the Fitbit. Um, our product was designed to be worn on multiple locations on the body and why that became a challenge was you could be doing the same activity but the signal that our 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 device uh, picks up and reads is different based on where you wear it you could be walking and running if it's on your wrist it's going to pick up a different signal than if it's on your waist so we had a multivariate yeah we had a a multivariate problem we had to not only you know, classify and detect what activity you were doing, whether it's swimming, running, cycling, or, or whatever, or sleeping. Supercomputing. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of those burn too many calories, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but we we also had to figure out where on the body you had placed the device, because we had to adjust your calorie, you had, we know, our, our, our calorie estimation has, or was, was based on that. So that ended up being a pretty, pretty complex uh, machine learning problem.
1: So now you sold that company to Fossil, right?
0: Yeah, just about a year ago we sold that, and uh, it, it found a good home. And uh, you know, the fossil's making making new products based on based on our technology.
1: And as I understand it now, you're doing a three-peat with Sunny. Yep. And staying in the in the IoT area, but this time um, the things are machines, not wrists.
0: Yes. Um, it, 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 so tell uh, us about
1: your new endeavor.
0: So the new company is called Elemental Machines, and the concept is very simple. Um, I looked at what we were doing at uh, at Misfit, and I realized, wow, we have the technology. We built the technology to take data from sensors that are literally distributed around the planet. There's a million people wearing our devices. We can take remote sensor data, shoot it to the cloud, do real time processing, and and shoot back insights and feedback, all for you know a few pennies and and within a within a few few fractions of a second. And I just thought that this. The, the computing technology stack that we use and we've developed was was incredible. And, you know, whilst there's a, there's a good market for fitness tracking and all this, I figured there's, there's actually a lot more you can do with this if you just swapped out the motion sensor, the accelerometer for different kinds of sensors like temperature, humidity, uh, sound, uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide. Um, and the reason I, I went that direction was going back to my roots in life sciences. Now, at at our first company, Agamatrix, um, we actually had some um, manufacturing challenges. We were manufacturing our glucose strips out in the Far East, and there would be three weeks between when they were manufactured and when when we could test them. And when you're making a couple of million strips per day, that's a couple of million dollars at risk. So if we we had to you know we had to do what what people today call predictive analytics, but the way we did that was we ended up putting sensors and in, uh, in, in our contract manufacturers facility and pulling all that data and and you know basically building our own machine learning algorithms and and, and models and it was effective and we were able to get our yields virtually 100% because we were able to find all these problems in manufacturing and fix them before they, they they became real but it was a very difficult process we couldn't find good sensors and good ways to get that data back to our servers and yet with my experience with Misfit and the wear, and the consumer wearable world, it was virtually—I won't say it's trivial, but it—it was—it was a very straightforward process for collecting data from distributed sensors.
2: So, it was your own experience actually having? Try to need it to solve this problem for a business reason for your, for your for earlier business that made you realize that there might be a market there, and then actually solving the problem wasn't especially difficult for you. Right. Once you realized that it was out there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That that's 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 a very good way to articulate it. Is that I had I had suffered through this years ago, and I looked at what we were doing at Misfit. And I'm like, wow, I wish I had this technology, you know, five or ten years ago, because it would have made my life a lot easier, and. That's when I started talking to other of my friends and associates in who who work in the pharma space, and everybody had a story to tell. Everybody, you know, at Agamatrix, I had this one situation where it took us three months to figure out that you know we we had some we had problem with the humidity um, in our lab that was that was affecting our results. It took us three months to debug to debug that problem, and once we figured out what the problem was, you know, fixing it took less than five minutes, and. Everybody in life sciences has had this, where it takes weeks or months to find a problem. But once you've found it, fixing it is easy.
1: So what's the most obvious application for your Elemental Machines product? And I've seen the devices. They're small. They're like little, you know, like half an iPhone-sized looking things. Yep. And you stick them on machines, right? And yep. what what's the the first application? So
0: the, the most requested application is actually monitoring um, environmental conditions, temperature, light, and humidity. Um, and th- th- this application is for uh, anyone who' works in in chemistry and biology and r and d or manufacturing. So th- th- the simple thing is um, temperature, light, and humidity are the things that affect a chemical reaction the most. So whether you're you're doing uh, you know immunology research or whether you're formulating a new drug or whether you're in your manufacturing and production, if you don't control temperature, light, and humidity, then it really affects uh, the quality of 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 the chemistry. And so, our biggest application is for quality control. and what what we're finding is we just have to give people the data uh, the ability to collect data easily, and because we're selling to scientists and 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 researchers, they know what to do with the data. We don't even have to do any of the machine learning. Now that'll of course come later, but um, the the biggest application is, Easy data collection, and it's kind of what Dropcam did uh, for for the um, for the IP camera industry. That, that you you had webcams, but Dropcam just made it super easy to collect, configure, and utilize um, data streams.
1: So you finally came up with a product that you could sell to your fellow superconducting supercomputing camp <laughs> friends. Good for you! Nicely done.
0: Yes, um, yes in the full circle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we are pretty close to out of time here, and um, but this has been fascinating. So it's so unusual, actually, to talk to somebody who's had you know two successes, you know, on their way to three. It's pretty rare, actually, to see entrepreneurs. We we all talk in the valley about serial entrepreneurs, but frankly, there aren't a whole ton of them that
0: that Would have. You that say they're as rare experience. as unicorns,
2: Lisa? Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> well,
0: well, yeah. We, um, well, we always have a joke that um, uh, you're, you're only a serial entrepreneur because because you, you haven't been able to cash out yet, <laughs> but uh, uh, that, that's always our inside joke, but but honestly, it's, it's such an addictive thing, and I, I think you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but once you start going, you, yeah, you can't give it up.
1: Definitely. Well, it's great to talk to you, as always, Shri, and uh, thank you very much for being on the show. It's fantastic, Sri.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Sri Iyengar is a serial entrepreneur and a co-founder of Elemental Machines.
1: I so enjoy talking to him because he has such a great perspective on things and he's so humble about, you know, his many accomplishments and, and uh, willing to kind of poke fun of himself despite the uh, tremendous skills and knowledge that he has.
2: I mean, in some ways, he really does seem like the archetype of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I mean, almost every feature, if you're going to, you know, kind of uh, limb a character. limb, you like Except that? Except he's not a middle-aged uh, or a young white guy in a hoodie uh, who's arrogant, so, you know. <laughs> all right, all right. I, I agree. He doesn't have that. But but but, but in terms of, I, I also think it does highlight the value of of. The entrepreneurial mindset and of looking for problems to solve, and of the empowering sense of feeling that if you find the right problem, you can solve it and you can make a difference. And he seems to go from problem to problem to problem. And even when he's in one company, you know, he seems to identify, oh, here's a problem, or at least it, he historicizes it like that, where <laughs> if he finds a problem, you're able to then. Um, say, not, oh, poor me, this is an issue, but, oh, I bet this is something I can fix, I can solve. So all the solutionism of Silicon Valley that everyone makes fun of, you know, actually there are instances where it really works. Well, and I think the other thing that's
1: interesting is all these three companies do such widely different things conceptually, but really there's a thread that runs through them as the sort of one flows from the other, flows from the other. And so I think having the vision
2: to see that that connectivity is is pretty special, and I also think it highlights the value of collaboration. I mean, it sounds like he really brings a you know sort of the signal processing aspect, but both. But he really has benefited as he highlights the uh, the value of collaborating with Sunny and his um you know the the, the complementary skill set that Sunny obviously brings.
1: Yeah, Sonny and Sri. There you <laughs> go. All right. Well, well, we're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health
2: data. Absolutely. You can follow the incomparable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the equally incomparable David Shewitz at Forbes. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Arrivederci.